In the name of the living God who created us and who redeemed us and who loves us. So we chose as our theme today uh, the gifts and challenges of living together in community. And uh, uh, we worship a God who is God's self, a community, a community of persons uh, who live together in mutual love and self-giving and self-service. So there's a, already a flow among the persons of the Trinity that we are invited to join. So community life is essential to our being. It's part of our DNA. And uh, we can't exist without others, can we? We rely on one another. And we depend on one another. And in the Christian community, we have a particular call to live in community. We are called members of the body of Christ in the world. And uh, we're given instruction from Paul and others on how to live in community together. I thought this afternoon I would just like to draw a few places from the SSJE rule of life uh, that talk about community life. A couple of points. Um, a, a rule of life, every monastic community has a rule of life, but it's not just a book of rules. You won't find very many rules in here, actually. It's simply a description of the, of the path that we're trying to follow, of the, of the way that we're trying to live. Monastic life is an intentional life with a specific purpose and direction. And so it says, here are the things we're going to do together. And here are the things that we'll leave off as less important. But we want to make sure that we gather for prayer. We want to make sure that this... So uh, all of those things are explained. So this, is a, this is kind of contains the wisdom of the community um, built up over ages. So I'll, I'll read you a few of the things that it says about living in community. One of the first things it says in the chapter called The Challenges of Life in Community, and there are challenges, uh, it says the first challenge of community life is to accept wholeheartedly the authority of Christ to call whom he will. <laughs> now that's a very gentle way of saying that <laughs> you may not like everybody that's here. <laughs> Uh, we uh, accept wholeheartedly the authority of Christ to call whom he will. And uh, we always tell the novices when they come into the community, um, God will appoint a teacher for you or maybe more than one who will be there specifically to help you to learn to be patient and to learn the grace of forbearance and to learn to forgive and to learn to accept and to learn to uh, live alongside as your brother. Uh, there will be at least one teacher for you. And don't bother praying that he leave because if he leaves, someone else will come. <laughs> yeah. You need these teachers. You need these teachers. You're going to have teachers in your parish, in your vestries. Uh, there will be teachers throughout your life who are there to, to help you uh, to gain virtue. Yeah. So we are called to accept it. The same chapter goes on to say this. We are also called 
to accept with compassion and humility the particular fragility, complexity, and incompleteness of each brother. The fragility, complexity, and incompleteness of each person. Our diversity and our brokenness mean that tensions and frictions are inevitably woven into the fabric of everyday life. It's telling us it's okay if there's tension and friction sometime. You're not going to escape that. That's part of human community. There's no community that doesn't occasionally have tension or friction. But it goes on to say, they are not to be regarded as signs of failure. Tension and friction are not signs of failure. It doesn't mean you're a bad community if you have some tension and friction. Instead, it says Christ uses them for our conversion as we grow in mutual forbearance and as we learn to let go of the pride that drives us to control and reform our brothers on our own terms. So, accepting the fragility, incompleteness, brokenness of each member of the community, expecting, anticipating that this will occasionally lead to tensions and friction in the community, a normal part of community life. Whether it's a community of two in a marriage or partnership or whether it's a community of several uh, hundred or so, uh, there will always be tension and friction. Third, not to say that that tension or friction is a sign that the community is dysfunctional or that it's a bad community. Uh, they're not... Uh, uh, they are inevitably woven into the fabric of our life. They're not to be regarded as signs of failures. What they're to be regarded as is opportunities to learn forbearance, to learn patience, to learn forgiveness, to learn to get, live together in harmony and love, to learn to accept, to learn to broaden our own minds and to open our own hearts they're tremendous opportunities. So don't consider them signs of failures. Think of them, here's an opportunity. Here's a teaching moment for me and for us. What helps us to live together? There's another part of our rule that I really love. Um, it's the chapter on silence. But and interestingly enough, the chapter on silence has some of the best advice about community life of the whole rule. And in the chapter on silence, it says this. In silence, we honor the mystery present in the hearts of our brothers and sisters, strangers, even enemies. We honor the mystery that is present in their hearts. Only God knows them as they truly are. And in silence, we learn to let go of the curiosity, 
presumption and condemnation which pretends to penetrate the mystery of their heart. Now that's quite a, that's quite a full sentence. You could spend a part of a retreat day just contemplating that sentence. In silence, we honor the mystery present in the hearts of each person. And that means that, means that I don't fully know this person. This person is a mystery to me. They will always be a mystery to me no matter how long I live with them, even our spouses and our lifelong partners are mysteries to us, we will never know their full story. We will never comprehend them fully. Only God knows them as they truly are. Even if I've lived with you for years, I actually only know the tip of the iceberg. There's a whole wealth of information about you that I don't have access to that I'll never completely understand. I don't know what formed you and deformed you when you were a child, what your family life was like, what pressures you experienced, what hopes of yours were dashed along the way, or what, uh, what brokenness you encountered. Uh, there are so many things that I will never know about you. And so I stand before you and I look at you and I see a mystery known only to God alone. And what that does is we can remember that, that people are mysteries. It gives us pause before we run in and slap a label on, before we run in and make judgments, before we decide about this person. We say, wait a minute now. I have to remind myself that I don't I've seen this, I've seen this word, this action. I know a few things about this person, but I don't know any of this. Only God has access to it. So it helps us to just withhold judgment, withhold criticism, be patient, try to understand, try to fit them in some kind of a bigger uh, framework than what we've had for them. In silence, we honor the mystery present in the hearts of our brothers and sisters, strangers and enemies. Only God knows them as they truly are. And in silence, we learn to let go of the curiosity, presumption, and condemnation which pretends to penetrate the mystery of their heart. When we're ready to put a label on something, we say, I've penetrated the mystery of that person's heart. I know about that guy. He's like this. He's one of those. You know, and like I said this morning, once we get that label affixed, we tend to respond to the label and we stop seeing the person. So if we remember, if we approach each other with a sense of, you are a mystery to me, it gives us a sense to step back and to be reverent in the presence of the mystery, to not pretend that we've seen and know everything we need to know about you to make this judgment about you. But it gives us opportunity to listen. The psalmist says at one point, deliver me from presumptuous sins. <laughs> one of those presumptuous sins is presuming I know what's right uh, for you and for me. Uh, true silence is an expression of love, it says. And the same thing is true for ourselves. It, it says this, 
In this silence, we learn to revere ourselves also. Since Christ dwells in us, we too are mysteries that cannot be fathomed, before which we must be silent until the day we come to know as we are known. So the same thing that's true of this brother or sister is true of yourself. You will never completely understand yourself. You will never completely comprehend the complexities of your own being. To this day, I don't know why this brother irritates me, but he doesn't seem to irritate anybody else. <laughs> they seem to like him. You know? Or why, why this thing triggers me and I get all upset about this, but this doesn't bother me at all. Why I'm tempted by this, but I'm not tempted by that or that or that. Why is that? How did I end up being the way I am? I don't know. I didn't plan that. I didn't decide that. I, it's just, this is who I've become. And the more uh, we know about ourselves, the more we can anticipate, oh, that's going to be a sticky spot for me. This is going to be a temptation for me. So just as it's true that we only see the tip of the iceberg on this other person, so the same thing is true. We only see the tip of the iceberg on us. We think we know ourselves, but there's a whole lifelong of learning that we can do and we'll still never plunge the depths and com fully comprehend ourselves. We too are mysteries that are known only to God. And that gives us the same permission to withhold judgment and to be patient and to be compassionate with ourselves, just like we are non-judgmental and patient and compassionate toward others. The writer of the first letter to John says, we love because we have first been loved. We love because he first loved us. Okay. So we have received this love from God. God says, you are my children. I've created you, redeemed you, called you by name. You are mine. You're precious in my sight, and I love you. That's our core of our identity. We've received that love. And God says, furthermore, I forgive you. It's all forgiven. And, and furthermore, I don't judge you. <laughs> I love you. And once we receive that love, once we receive that forgiveness, once we realize that we're not judged and condemned, though we may feel that we deserve it, God says, no, I want you to be my children. Once we've received that, then we can turn around and give that to others. We can love others as he's loved us. We can forgive others as he's forgiven us. We can be patient with others as he's been patient with us. And say, so we receive, we love because you first loved us. And uh, that love has transformed us and it allows us to keep even our enemies in this place of their mysteries to us. I'm gonna try to love him even though I don't understand him or know the whole background of why he is the way he is. 
I don't understand his fears, his anxieties, his, the pressures that are on him now. I'm going to try to love him just as he is rather than say, oh, I know about that guy. Okay. The beautiful, uh, this is, I'm convinced that this is somewhat the work of prayer. We need help and we need to open our hearts to God to help us to love especially those who we find difficult to love. Some people are easy for us to love. It's natural for us to love them. They're, they're just, they resonate with us. We connect with them. It's easy. Other people are much more challenging. And we, we need help. So how do you find the help that you need to love this particular person or this group of people? How do you grow? And this, I think, is the work of prayer. Part of it is that receiving God's love for ourselves. Once we know ourselves to be loved, we can become channels of that same love to others. But we also need in prayer to, to, to expand our hearts. And one of the ways we can do that is by bringing these people into the, into the place of prayer with us. I give you those three images to practice praying with people uh, this morning. But uh, in the chapter on intercession, there's a quotation from our founder, Father Benson. And uh, he, he says this about intercession. In intercession, we shall discover the power of to love those we find difficult. We pray for our enemies. In intercession, in prayer, we will find power to love those we find difficult. Father Benson taught us, and here's his quote, in praying for others, we learn really and truly to love them. As we approach God on their behalf, we carry the thought of them into the very being of eternal love. And as we go into the being of him who is eternal love, so we learn to love whatever we take with us there. Do you see what he's saying? In prayer, we enter into the presence of the one who is love, the one who knows all and uh, knows everything about each of us and still continues to declare love for us. We bring this person with us through our intercessions into that presence and we allow them and us to be changed by being in the presence of eternal love. So prayer is part of the place where we work out the tensions and frictions of community life. And we take the brothers and sisters whom we rub against, bump against, oppose, who seem to be our enemies. Jesus telling us, love your enemies, presumes that we're going to have enemies. <laughs> There's going to be somebody there to love. There's going to be somebody there who opposes you or thinks differently than you or who has a different agenda than you do or who is even working in opposition to what you're working to be. Jesus says, love them anyway. 
Remember, they are a mystery known only to God. Don't think that you have penetrated the mystery of who they are. Instead, bring them with yourself into the presence of eternal love, and both of you will be changed. <laughs>